Welcome to the Gaggle Podcast, where we bring you inside the newsroom to talk Arizona politics beyond what's in print. I'm Yvonne Winget Sanchez, the Governor's Office and State Politics Reporter at the Arizona Republic and azcentral.com. Joining me this week at our Arizona Capitol Bureau are... Ron Hansen. I cover the congressional delegation. Ryan Randazzo. I'm a business reporter. Dustin Gardner. I cover the state legislature. This week on The Gaggle, women seeking abortions in Arizona could soon be asked to explain why they want to end their pregnancy. Former State Senator Montenegro, an immigration hardliner, got to the U.S. thanks to a work-related provision in immigration law that allowed him and his family a path not open to everyone. But first, Don Shooter, who was expelled from the House of Representatives, claims the governor's office was politically motivated to see him removed from office. Remember, this is a man who was accused by many women of sexually harassing him, and a state investigation found that he did indeed sexually harass people. On his way out the door, Shooter left what we will call a dossier on his claims that include being surveilled by a private investigator and suspicious procurement-related issues with the state. Ryan, you dug into those issues. What did you find? Well, there seems to have been a long-running dispute between Mr. Shooter and the governor's office and uh, departments within the state over their technology contracts. Uh, This dispute goes back at least a couple of years. Shooter ran a bill in 2016. He got it through both houses, and that bill would have set some parameters on how the state uh, doles out its technology contracts. It would have required that they be competitively bid, and the governor vetoed that bill. Um, At the time, the governor's signature letter said, or veto letter, said that um, it would hinder uh, technology. Now, the governor's spokesman is giving some different excuses for why that happened uh, that weren't mentioned in the letter, so I would say that's in itself a little bit suspicious. There's a contract uh, that was a no-bid contract given to Amazon Web Services. It appears that Don Shooter uh, had an issue with that. And also, he was uh, pretty deeply involved in a procurement software contract. So this is the software that the state uses to run uh, competitive bidding processes for other um, contracts that it might sign with vendors. Uh, there was a winner and a loser, and um, the the company that lost that bid, uh, Periscope Holdings, hired a friend of the governor's to lobby for them. And when Shooter uh, helped move that contract to the winning bidder, he says that perhaps the uh, allegations against him were some sort of a revenge plot for him um, uh, helping move that contract away from Ducey's friend. And that friend... Uh is Brian Townsend, and he is a lobbyist and a longtime Capitol insider who, at the time of the um, investigation into sexual harassment allegations, was engaged to Representative Michelle Ugenti Rita, um, and he had, for a time at least, worked in, in the governor's administration. And we haven't heard from him or Representative Eugenti Rita about whether or not, you know, there might be really anything to these claims. Clearly, the governor's office and the Department of Administration um, have denied that there is anything um, here, uh, that, that this is a man who has been discredited and nothing that he says should be believed. We should point out, though, that he uh, is or was, up until recently at least, uh, in a position to know a lot about how the sausage is made, procurement issues. Uh, as appropriations chair, he had a vantage point that is not necessarily 
granted to other people. And really, he's not the kind of guy who's been known to like spill the beans or leak about these types of kind of weighty, high stakes contracts. So there is a feeling, I think, even by capital insiders and lawmakers that maybe there is something here. How do you foresee this playing out? Well, if anyone sees something there, it probably has a lot to do with timing, because as appropriations chair, he had subpoena powers. And he just happened to threaten the governor's office with those subpoena powers about a week before the allegations against him came out. And so he's saying that the timing is suspicious, that this long-running, years-long debate with the governor's office finally came to a head. He threatened the governor's office with subpoenas. Shortly thereafter, he was named in a scandal that eventually, well, that almost immediately resulted in him losing those subpoena powers and then eventually resulted in him being removed from office. And the first woman to name him was Michelle Eugenti Rita. We should say that. Another part of the dossier included uh, a DPS report, which we were able to independently verify with state police. And it showed that uh, Mr. Shooter, uh, after a... um, a legislative lobbyist softball game last April saw a gray silver-ish Honda CRV following him and thought to himself, huh, that's weird. He gets to the Buttes in Tempe, which is a, a hotel. He has drinks with a friend. He thinks he gets there at about 10 o'clock. At least that's what he tells state police. But then he left a short time after. He then drives home, once again, notices that there's a suspicious vehicle following him back to his home in the Biltmore area, realizes it's the same CRV that had been following him before, takes down the plate number, does a cat and mouse game with him to try to lose him, and says that uh, he pulls into his driveway, comes out, there it is again, he gets back in his car, He tries to, quote-unquote, confront the driver, and the driver tries to take him out uh, or run him off the road. He then reports that uh, to state police as, uh, you know, potentially a threat. They do their due diligence and find out that he was indeed followed by a private investigator, and that private investigator clearly was trying to do something to shoot her. Yeah, just get dirt on him, perhaps, or uh, try and get him in some sort of legal trouble. Um, and Shooter, of course, ties this all back to uh, you know his dispute with the governor's office, suggesting that it was someone there that ordered that private investigator to follow him and to also call police and report a uh, drunken driver um, that the night that that was happening. And police were able to substantiate that 911 was called. There were logs with Phoenix police and DPS that night. Uh, so more to come, probably. On this, it's, uh, our phones clearly have been certainly have been ringing off the hook related to some procurement issues, and uh, I, I just don't think that this is a story that will go away anytime soon. Justin, there's been a lot of fear about an abortion-related bill that uh, emerged. It looks as though it's going to be the signature bill uh, by the Center for Arizona Policy um, this year, a, a socially conservative and very powerful group. Tell us about Senate Bill 1394. Yeah, so as you were saying, there have not been many abortion-related bills this session, um, but there is one, however, that is 
attracting quite a bit of attention. Um, this bill, the the and the main point of contention is a requirement that would make doctors re report more a more detailed reason for why a woman gets a an abortion. Under current state law, doctors already have to file reports um, for every abortion they perform with the State Department of Health Services, and currently they're only reporting whether an abortion was elective or due to a medical reason. This bill would ask doctors to ascertain far more information about why a woman wants an abortion. They would be asking whether it's due, for example, to economic reasons or if it's due to an extramarital affair or abuse um, or rape, just very um, detailed reasons for why a woman would want to end her pregnancy. Do you have a sense as to how they think this would help prevent abortions? I mean, this clearly is the goal of this group. They do not... They want to end abortions, period. How does this help? Yes, that's been one of the interesting um, parts of the dialogue so far. The bill's sponsor, prime sponsor, I should point out, um, Senator Nancy Bartow has not publicly spoken about it um, yet. She did not respond to my request for interviews. Um, and when I talked with Kathy Herod, um, the president of the Center for Arizona Policy, you know, she did not emphasize that this bill was about stopping abortions. She said, you know, that's she kind of dismissed that complaint from opponents of the bill and said this is about improving women's health and to, you know, having better data is always going to help the state, you know, know how to um, provide better services to help women that, you know, you know, might not want to get an abortion or might want alternatives. Um, so they very much downplayed that aspect of it and just kind of emphasized, you know, the good data argument. Well, what would the bill change specifically from existing law? Yeah, so it's, it's just uh, the biggest change is the level of detail that the doctor would seek from the woman, you know, wanting to get an abortion. Um, like I was saying, you know, currently they're just reporting whether an abortion was elective or due to medical reasons. Literally on, you know, the, the reporting form to DHS, doctors are just clicking elective. They're not getting detailed um, in the sense of asking a woman, you know, her, her reasons beyond that. This bill really does ask them to, to you know, to, 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 to push the question and ask a woman, you know, what, what is causing this? Can you not afford the child? You know, is something wrong in your relationship? Has this been done in other states, or is this something that looks like it could become a model? So this is modeled after similar abortion reporting laws in Minnesota and Oklahoma. Um, Arizona is already one of the states that has a very um, e explicit abortion reporting law. Um, you know, like I was saying, under the existing law, they're already asking whether an abortion is elective. Arizona would be following other states that have pushed the question much farther. Prior controversial legislative proposals related to abortion. I mean, clearly they've been split along party lines. Does this one look as though it's going to fall along those same lines? Yeah, definitely. There's pretty strong Republican backing for this in both chambers. The list of sponsors is, is you know, it's a, kind of a who's who of powerful lawmakers in the House and the Senate. Um, I think there'll be some pretty strong resistance from Democrats. Planned Parenthood is trying to fight this, you know, and we've been hearing from a lot of women that are just kind of outraged that a woman who is seeking a, a legal procedure would have to, you know, have their doctor question them about personal things in that way. Um, you know, but like I said, there are strong Republican sponsors, and it'll be interesting to see especially how this fares in the Senate. Do some of those women think that this is a way to maybe shame them out of making this decision? Yeah, I think that's been the chief critique um, from Planned Parenthood and the women that I've heard from is they feel like, you know, obviously 
in their minds that this question is not about improving their health, asking you know if their abortion is due to an affair or abuse or um, economic reasons. That you know, in their mind, they feel like this is all about embarrassing women and making them fearful about going going and getting an abortion. Most people, when they hear from Mr. Montenegro, at least, will really only hear kind of the top line narrative of how he got to this country and did so legally. You got to spend uh, some rare time with him, and he explained to you exactly how his family immigrated to the United States from El Salvador. What did you learn? Well, Steve Montenegro, his whole congressional narrative seems to be uh, that he is uh, an authentic uh, hardliner on immigration and, and border security, um, and unlike his rivals, uh, has some personal dealings with this. His family immigrated legally from El Salvador when he was a child, and, and he holds that up as sort of uh, underscoring his own commitment to that ideal, that people need to do this legally. What's interesting in his case is that his family arrived through a work-related provision in immigration law that was not widely available to others. In other words, um, his father as a minister with a sponsoring congregation was able to get him and his family, including young Steve at five years old, into the United States on a permanent basis um, by virtue of his, his job at that point. And what we try to do in the story is sort of underscore the uh, the reality of the Salvadoran plight in the 1980s. At that time, uh, they were about midway through a 12-year civil war in El Salvador, and the Reagan administration really took the position that they did not want uh, to accept refugees, uh, grant asylum uh, to Salvadorans. It was inconvenient for a government that the Reagan administration was still supporting at that time. So really getting into uh, the U.S. from El Salvador in the mid-1980s would have been pretty difficult. You couldn't just flee an unfolding civil war. Uh, you needed sort of special conditions for a special visa, and that's what the Montenegro family was able to receive because of their father's uh, ministerial duties. So how does he reconcile his own experience and his family's experience with his position that others uh, from you know, difficult circumstances or difficult backgrounds should not necessarily always be given that same sort of path. You know, one thing to add with Steve Montenegro is he is a naturalized U.S. citizen. Uh, he was naturalized as a, as a child, um, uh, I think when he was a young teenager. And he answers the question as an American, he emphasizes that I answer these kinds of issues as somebody who has a connection uh, in that way that is in, you know, in many ways no different than anybody else's, that his interest is in promoting American interests first and foremost, and that we have a duty to our own citizens, our own uh, people here to take care of them, and that um, we can't just let in everybody who would like to be here, and that those who do come need to do it through legal channels, which is what he and his family did. There's obviously an understandable um, uh, interest in, in sort of reconciling 
the narrowness of the path that he took and understanding how difficult that was and 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 such and uh, Steve just really kind of um, doubled down on this to say that we can't take everybody and we must do things legally. He took even a fairly hard-line view as to what to do with uh, the so-called dreamers. These are the children of people who came here illegally but uh, are nevertheless still here and in many cases are um, you know, so removed from their, their native countries that they don't even speak the language of, say, Mexico or somewhere else. Um, and Steve's fairly hard line on that as well. It, he, he just feels very strongly in uh, these kinds of issues, um, and it creates a, a layer of interest, I think, for people to understand that he is somebody who, under slightly different circumstances, would be on the other side of the wall that he is supporting uh, the government to build. And I think that that is what was so interesting about your piece and, and you know, in talking to people about it, you know, when he was down here at the state capitol, he lived and died by the mantra of, of not picking winners and losers. And yet he came to this country based on a system that essentially picked winners and losers. They picked a few. Um, and, and it's just a few. This is something that, again, wasn't widely available to everybody. Uh, and, and I should make clear, I mean, the Montenegro family did not do anything uh, untoward. There's no information that we have that says that they abused this in any way, but it is something to be aware of that uh, is a fairly narrow uh, path for any family to get here through. And uh, the Salvadoran situation was such that there were refugees by the hundreds of thousands in the 1980s leaving the Civil War. They also had uh, a, an earthquake that the Montenegro family missed by about two months uh, that displaced like a million people at the time. Uh, they've had two other earthquakes in 2001 that also created uh, further uh, displacement of Salvadorans along with uh, a brush with a major hurricane. So conditions in El Salvador have been and continue to be fairly desperate. In the country today, uh, the Civil War is over, but the gang violence is not, and it's still one of the most dangerous places in Central America. And again, it's a, a case where there's not a lot of opportunities for people to leave those conditions and come here. Um, but Steve would say, look, they have to fix their country and we have to take care of ours. Last week, Ryan unwittingly started a new segment when he called out an agency that had not released his public records to him. We are now going to make that permanent, at least until Michael Squires comes back and mans the podcast again. So for our final segment, Ron, who hasn't given you your public records? You know, this is uh, kind of a, an easy one. So campaign finance reports are public records and they're displayed nicely for the Federal Election Commission, uh, especially in House races. You get to see them almost instantly when they're filed. The Senate still deals in pencil and paper and pens and things like that, and it just takes weeks to get the particulars of campaign finance reports in Senate races. And 
Arizona has a pretty good one this year. Maybe we'll have two. And it would be wonderful if we could get these campaign finance reports digitized and made widely available publicly uh, in something less than weeks. So please, FEC, if you're listening, let's get with it on the Senate side. Ryan? So many people might not realize that Salt River Project is not just an electric utility, but that's also a political body. And I've asked them for some information on uh, a vote uh, to increase the pay for their elected officials and also for some information on their search for a new CEO. I've got a standing request in for the calendars of certain um, legislative leaders, um, and one in particular is not complying with that request. Senate President Steve Yarbrough, uh, through an attorney, has said that his meetings with um, other lawmakers and interest groups about pending legislation are privileged. I asked them to cite what provision of the state public records law allows them to withhold those documents or those meetings, and they have not responded yet. So I would like those records and a response. And I have been trying to get records involving uh, the governor's office's communications with federal officials related to Obamacare and health care since last June. And I have reached out to them more than half a dozen times, probably about a dozen times if you include our verbal communications. And I got zip nada. So I would really like to see what those records say. That's it for today. Thank you for listening to the Gaggle Podcast. You can find me on Twitter at Yvonne Winget. You can find me at Ronald J. Hansen, and that's H-A-N-S-E-N. I'm at Utility Reporter. I'm at Dustin Gardner, and that's G-A-R-D-I-N-E-R. Thanks to the politics team and also our producers, Haley Sanchez and Sean Logan. Please subscribe to our show and review it on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or Google Play. See you next week.